Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. The Institute of Contemporary Art Boston is exhibiting the first career-length survey of my first guest, Arlene Sheckett. Titled Arlene Sheckett All at Once, the exhibition includes 20-plus years' worth of work, from the sculptor's Buddha-inspired figures of the early 1990s, through work she recently made at the Meisen Porcelain Manufactory in southeastern Germany. The exhibition was curated by Janelle Porter and will be on view through September 7th. Sheckett's work has also been exhibited by the Tang Teaching Museum and Art Gallery, the MCA Denver, the Henry Art Gallery, and her work is in the collections of institutions such as LACMA, the Walker Art Center, the Whitney Museum of American Art, and the RISD Museum. On the second segment, Museum of Fine Arts Houston curator Mari Carmen Ramirez returns to the program to discuss her latest presentation from Houston's exceptional collection of Latin American modernism. Titled Cosmic Dialogues, the installation includes an astonishing gallery of kinetic light sculptures rarely exhibited in the United States. But first, Arlene Checkett, after the break. Hundreds of neighborhoods, thousands of historic landmarks, one easy search. That's what the Getty, in partnership with the City of Los Angeles, has created with Historic Places L.A., the first online information and management system specifically developed for Los Angeles to inventory, map, and describe its significant cultural resources, from places of social importance and architecturally significant buildings to historic districts and bridges. The system is accessible to everyone, ensuring that the ever-changing city keeps a firm hold on its historic roots. Start your virtual trip to Los Angeles at historicplacesla.org. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Dear Nemesis, Nicole Eisenman, 1993-2013, to on view at its La Jolla location from May 9th through September 6th. For 20 years, Nicole Eisenman has developed a creative vision that combines high and low culture with virtuosic skill. Fusing centuries-old art-making conventions and a multitude of art-historic influences with contemporary subject matter, she has created depictions of community, identity, and sexuality. Her incisive socio-political critique operates through the quotidian and the absurd in ways that are both formally playful and visually breathtaking. For more information, visit mcasd.org. And we're back. Arlene Sheckett, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Great to be here. Thanks. The catalog for the ICA Boston exhibition includes a transcription of a conversation between you and Janine Antoni, and I wanted to start there before we get into the work. One of the first things you say to her is that there are not, is quote, there are not many people to talk with about being a woman sculptor, which is a, a, a notable locution in the sense that it differentiates talking with female sculptors from talking with sculptors or more specifically male sculptors. Why does, in terms of having someone to talk about what you do with, why does, you know, what does talking to a a woman sculptor, as you put it, bring to a conversation that's meaningful to you that just talking with a sculptor doesn't? Well, I should say that, first of all, there aren't that many sculptors, period, to talk to. But I think that there is still this heavy lifting notion of being a sculptor and the whole vocabulary of that is 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 quite outmoded but i think all of uh, all of us who have been sculptors or are sculptors are still weighed down by that and so the history of 
of sculpture and men is much more robust than women as sculptors. So, you know, it's just it's just unusual to have the opportunity to share to share that information. You know, there's a lot about making stuff, there's a lot about it's more time consuming and it is a different kind of vocabulary, I think. So there's something maybe scratching around in for a woman in finding a vocabulary of being a sculptor. In the catalog conversation, and the catalog is, is, is a really excellent book. I, I, I strongly recommend it. You and Janine Antoni talk about how you think gender matters to the process of making work. I wonder if you think that in, in talking with other sculptors, other women sculptors, if you talk about gender as mattering to the outcome. You know, when when you were just asking that, the I was I was thinking of when I was in school and I discovered Ree Morton, and I just was riveted by this work that I saw in this little book that turned you know turned out to be maybe the only book on her. Although I think there is one that's out now, and that information like it was so it was so talked about as female, but I didn't immediately identify it like that. And then I, it, 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 I really, I think, got to embrace that idea that there would be a vocabulary that is female. And hers was particularly resonant in that way in terms of having bows and flags and, you know, like window dressing kinds of stuff, but I think that now when when I'm making things, I am thinking about how there's a muscularity to some of it that is me investigating that aspect of myself that maybe I was afraid to enact at a younger age or afraid to even go there and that kind of there's an aggressiveness to 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 being a sculptor to you know physically pushing things around and I mean it's interesting in relationship to my conversation with Janine because Janine isn't particularly a sculptor who I think of as pushing things around as their primary focus like she's somebody who I wanted to speak to because in a way we come from very different places and she's imagining things and thinking things and then enacting them. And I'm more thinking things and enacting them as part of the process of conceiving of them. So I you know, we're coming at them from, we're coming at working from very different points of view. And I feel like the whole acceptance in the world of women working in sculpture is maybe the most distant place you can be in terms of the center of the art world and the center of what's acceptable. Because I think women are allowed to do drawings and and paintings, but still that idea of physical engagement is a bit far off. 
You mentioned physically pushing things around. Is there, and, and doing that more in recent years, is there a piece in the show that you think is a really good example of that? There was a piece right at the beginning, airtime, where I felt like it was almost impossible to make this thing. And I had to prop, it's fairly large, I had to prop it up and figure out how to have a cantilever and figure out how to have an internal structure that didn't make the thing way down. And there was just a lot of engineering and, and moving the clay around and pulling it and pushing it. And so maybe that, that one, airtime, was a big one in that way. And also, idle, idle, there's a lot of pushing around of material. And I mean, when I say pushing around, I don't think I mean pushing around as a singular activity. I mean, pushing and yielding as as something that happens together or one thing after the other. So there is, there is a, that kind of push-pull, that kind of conversation with the material that, you know, that I try to engage with and pay attention to. So, and maybe Good Ghost as well. Those were the, think, the pieces that come to mind as involving that activity. I think we'll come back to Idle Idle in, in a little bit, but before we get there, so this is more or less a career-length survey-ish, although it includes, I think, nothing you made before 1993. And so in 1993, you're already in your 40s. Was it your decision not to include work earlier than that, curator Janelle Porter's decision? I I think we came to that immediately. I, I don't think at that point I became the artist I am today in terms of working through things, working in my studio, a kind of studio practice that even if the work doesn't look like it came from the same place, it is coming from the same activity of how I would, how I engage in the studio and what I think is important to my life and what I think is important to convey. So that was just like absolutely the logical moment to look at. The show opens, at least in chronological terms, with a series of forms you made related to Eastern religious imagery, particularly Buddhist imagery. And you've told the story a number of times about how and when and why and what life events started you making forms based on on Buddhist imagery. And I'm sure that'll come up as we talk about it. But when did you discover Eastern mythology and religion in that iconography? Was it even earlier than, than those life events about which I hinted? Yeah, yeah. So 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 basically I always was a person who lusted after the idea of adventure and travel. And I investigated, I think, in an armchair version of that, Eastern iconography and Asian art early on in terms of art history. But, you know, it was, there were just images. I didn't really, maybe I knew one line explanations of what those things were about, but I didn't really delve into it. I was just looking at pictures and things in museums and books. But I moved to Boston and they had this Alan Watt program on the radio 
and I really, I, you know, I just used to listen to it on, I think it was Sunday mornings. I used to get up early because it was one of my, I, I was teaching at RISD at the time, and I was one of my possible studio days. I would get up early, and I'd turn it on, and I just loved, he was like a drone musician. And I, I heard it sort of as music, but he was espousing all kinds of Eastern philosophy or a full range of Eastern philosophy through his own, you know, very outsider lens. And I had no idea who he was. And I think I listened for most of the time without really paying attention. But every once in a while, it would just like penetrate my brain. And he just spoke very simple truths and had a weird sense of humor. And so that piqued my interest. And I then was, maybe that in a way, left me open to meeting my husband when I was about to leave Boston a couple of years later, and he was, he's a psychiatrist, he was in, he was in training, and he was, at the same time as a freshman in college, he had discovered Eastern thought and philosophy and was very much enmeshed and engaged with all of those ideas. So, our lives, he moved with me to New York, uh, we got married, and in our lives together, involved piles of books and events related to Buddha, <laughs> Buddhism. And, and again, I, I felt like I was intellectually interested, but I wasn't, and, and I of course was moved, but I was, it wasn't deep in me until I really had that idea or had those experiences that made me change my my studio practice and made me start to look at the art again and in looking at the art because that was the part that my husband Mark was not looking at he was only thinking the thoughts and I was only looking at the art because I found I found that the the art at a certain point was the real teacher for me, that everything that I needed to know was in the art. And then we would share that. So it was part of my, you know, the membrane of my life in a very real way. So you start making your first Buddhas around 1993, and they are abstractions away from specific from, from, from specific Buddhas. So if, if, if we think about Buddhas in, in Asian art, whether recently or in the distant past, we think of very specific figurative forms. Why did you choose to abstract, to embrace those forms and then to abstract away from them at the exact same time? I don't think I ever, well, first of all, I didn't, I didn't really want to make a Buddha. So it wasn't that I was abstracting something. It was that I stumbled into it by making something that was more like a lump. I was just experimenting in my studio with bags of plaster and water and not using an armature because I just said, you know, I I need to find another way of working that is completely immediate. I had time issues related to having very small children, having a teaching job, having not enough studio time. And I just wanted to have some kind of authentic process that that spoke to how I could reinvent my life, my studio life, and have it have some kind of integrity. And I felt like 
working in the immediate present and being attentive to time in that I'm just going to use, I was just going to, or I was committed to using the time that I had each day or, you know, it was more like three or four days a week that I could actually get to the studio, using that time in a way that was complete so that each time I was in the studio, I could begin and finish a project and relieve myself of this longing for what my life had been or anticipation of what my life might be in the future. I just felt that I needed to be there with whatever was happening. And, you know, mushy liquid plaster was, I actually just happened to have bags of that because I love, and I love plaster. So it was immediately available, but also the very nature of that material, mixing it up and watching it transform absolutely is riveting. You know, it's just riveting. Even though I taught it, I'd seen it, I, you know, a, a million times the, it gets hot, it gets cold. It, 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 it has like waves of smoke coming out of it. It's a powder, it's a liquid, and it's a solid all within, you know, 10 minutes. And so that way of working, you know, was, was super exciting to me. And not using an armature was such a, like, stupid no-no, you know, making these, like, heavy rocks, sort of. And then one day, the, the rocks or turds looked, you know, I, it just looked Buddha-like. So I wasn't really, so I came at it through abstraction, <laughs> not like thinking of a Buddha and trying to make it and then abstract it. I came at it from it being a lump. So it appeared to me, it became that thing. And I had absolutely, I, the, the idea of making any kind of figure or you know, dealing with figuration or an icon would would have been completely not interesting and terrifying in a not good way. So stumbling on it and then embracing it because it was so weird and didn't make any sense. I just saw it as as, as just you know another another kind of form like it, it, it's a form that but it happened to have some meaning and so I realized like I'm just gonna you know go with that and you know be open to traveling that road because in fact in every there is no one Buddha even though everybody thinks they know what the Buddha looks like in every single culture and every single incarnation of the Buddha, it looks different. A Thai Buddha looks way different than a Chinese Buddha. You know, a Buddha from from one period of time looks very different from a Buddha of another period. So, you know, so then I realized there is really no Buddha. And those first pieces I actually even called decoys because I felt like they were just stand-ins for something. They just represented something. I mean, maybe that's what all art is. I don't know. But, you know, I, I was thinking those thinking those things. I was, like, wor- working to discover the Buddha in my day's work. And I have to say that I was living in lower Manhattan in Tribeca, and 
Elizabeth Murray lived down the street and I didn't know her well, but we knew each other from the street and afterwards, and then, you know, I got to know her better, but after, I remember one day when I was, I probably had been involved in the making the Buddhas for a, a while, or but not really talking about it or or admitting to myself what I was doing. I remember her saying, "Oh, I have this. You know, come to this show. I just." curated or my assistant is going to be in this show and he's he made a sink a plaster sink and I like I just remember oh my god a plaster sink I had a perfect you know I, I just, of course he made a plaster sink perfect it, it, it just it wasn't just that Gober was using the plaster it was just like the sink was a sink but it wasn't a sink and that's you know, where I felt I was. So I, I felt like I touched home base at that point. So it almost sounds like really the way in was entirely material, well, not entirely, but primarily material and secondarily rooted in anything else. It was primarily situational. It was primarily me setting up the parameters of how I was going to work in my studio, the method more than the material. So you did a Q&A with Jane Dixon, in which you talk about meditating in your studio and beginning to pay a lot of attention to breathing, and that, quote, breathing became form in, 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 in your work, which is a neat idea. I don't think I said that I was meditating in my studio. Exactly. No, you said you sort. Actually, I think you said you sort of meditated in your studio. You, there, there was a qualifier there that maybe I. I, I think I think what what I was saying was sort of this. It was the same thing that I just said. I was setting up situations in the studio to like parameters within which I would work, and that the, that one of those parameters was this: just work with what is, you know, and you know, time, sometimes, you know, different different kinds of situations, and that and that part of what I was doing was trying to have what I was calling meditative consciousness, which is different from the using the unconscious, which was maybe an older idea about how art was made. So meditative consciousness being very aware and present and alert. So I think that, that that's the kind of meditation I was after. Well, I love that quote about breathing becoming form, which is a really neat idea. Could you give us an example of something in the show that maybe talks our way into that idea? Yeah, I, I think like Twin Rockers, right away, that was an early piece where something something almost like a puff of air or, and then this, it felt like it could be a container for that puff of air, like if you could describe breathing out and holding that breath and giving it form, that's what that would look like. And at the same time, having these really long, thin appendages that are open creates this situation of air moving in and out. So at the same time that it's in there, you could feel how maybe in another minute it would be released and deflated. And in fact, a piece, anything and always, is almost like that more deflated lung. And so there were... I. 
I, I would think about that if I felt like I was making something and I needed to touch base with how I wanted it to breathe, I would think about it in terms of in-breath and out-breath. We'll have images of both on manpodcast.com. You have made a lot of sculptures that recall reliquaries, such as the crystal works later in the 90s. And I guess I'm not explicitly thinking about the, the, the Stupas drawings because I hadn't thought of them as architectural reliquaries until you described them that way in, a, in, a, in an essay in the catalog. Well, a Stupa is an art, architectural reliquary. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I just, it hadn't occurred to me. I mean, that hadn't occurred to me until until you said it. So reliquaries have a very, I don't know, reliquaries are kind of different things in, in Christianity and in Eastern religion, at least in terms of scale, for example. And they are objects that came into being because of a particular need related to function rather than, than form. And, I, and so I guess my question is what made them interesting or a place of potential as, as a sculptural form you wanted to explore? Well, well, first of all, I think I wanted to augment and maybe mess up a little the clear reading of the Buddha. So I didn't, because my, my purpose in making the Buddhas was really to have this experience in the studio and that that was the true nature of what I was about at that point. And I was even... Vi- you know, at the beginning, very reluctant to even think of them as art. At that point, my studio was more like a place to go. And in itself, I mean, maybe a studio is always a sanctuary, but it was particularly in that time that I needed it to be that place. I needed it to be the one place I could be where I could be alone and I could be trying to rethink what my life was about and what my work might be about. But I wasn't necessarily so focused on art. You know, like here I'm making art right now and I'm going to show this art and this art is going to lead me to have a career. You know, none of those things were what I was thinking at that time. I was just thinking, let me go someplace that's safe and I can have this experience. And then when they're out in the world, then, then when I did start to show them a little bit, I, I had this feeling that you do have to let go. You have to allow them to be in the world if you're agreeing to show them and, and acquire whatever vocabulary they will acquire in that realm. But at the on the other hand, I didn't want to be the person who makes the Buddhas because that wasn't, you know, that wasn't the truth of what I was doing. As I just described, I was really like stumbled into this. <laughs> and and so I wanted to mess up a clear reading. And at the same time, I was deeper and deeper into all kinds of Eastern iconography and discovered the idea they discovered or rediscovered mandalas which you know no i had no attraction to but when i discovered that a mandala was actually a floor plan and what i and and a place like a real 
place that people would go entering the doorways, you know, in a very concrete way, and that they were also used, those mandalas were actually used as plans for building stupas, I became very interested in that entire package of information. And that's why I made those blue and white drawings at that time using the floor plans and that's why it has the same piece of information that maybe I talked about before which is there's no single Buddha you know they look different everywhere well the stupas are everywhere and they're all different but they have very similar structure and so the stupa one other reading of the stupa is that a stupa is another is an architectural equivalent of the Buddha's body so it just became a very good way for me to add information, dig into things I was interested in, and put something out in the world that made people ask questions or wonder, like, what's now, what's that? And so, get, you know, have, make the conversation bigger rather than so tight. And the fact that they are put in the landscape as places to as as structures that will cleanse the landscape cleanse those places and that people visit those places and that you cannot walk into them was especially wonderful so i saw them as big sculptures like big lumpy sculptures and that in fact their forms were often articulated in a very similar way as the Buddhas. So they they have my favorite ones being, you know, the very Sanchi Robidor I had visited early on, actually, and before I was even interested in this whole line of thought on trip to Indonesia. And so so anyway, I I just wanted it to be you know, a richer conversation and I love those places. I learned to inhabit those places myself and have a kind of similar kind of private practice of entering into those diagrams and visiting those places. And it was, you know, quite, quite rich. So the, 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 the crystal reliquary like works aren't vessels, but they're, they're related to vessels. At least they look related to vessels to me. And you have over many years made, actual vessels, and you've made them out of kind of wildly different materials, porcelain, paper. Were vessels themselves attractive or interesting as an endpoint, or were they the result of process and studio-oriented rules that just kind of took you there? Well, first of all, let me just say those crystal reliquary-like structures, that the important part of that, again, is that those pieces the parts making up those pieces are all balanced one on top of the other. So it was a lot about addressing that issue of balance, which became a subject matter of the later clay pieces. But the balance and having to find balance within a fragile material within a fragile structure, create a a solid structure using very fragile material was pretty interesting to me. And the making, but the vessel, in answer to your question about the vessel, when I took the 
that those mandalas, those floor plans, and I think it, they were the paper pieces made back into reconfigured to become three-dimensional forms that were vases. I just decided, okay, the vase, I mean, I just immediately leapt over whole forms of thought and said, okay, the stupa is a vessel and it's, you know, it has this circular form and it has, has, is a container and it is, and the way people use it and handle it, it makes it a kind of sacred space. I mean, ashes end up in it and like, like lots, pe- people tend to have, people do puja in the East, they always have a vase in Japan, it's a, a big image. You know, it's just, it's, and, and I think in America, in the household, it's, it's a thing. It's, it's a kind of, I saw it as a kind of domestic version of sacred architecture. So I just went for that I went for that vessel, that vase form. And, you know, years ago, I remember that Joel Shapiro did a some kind of hanging, and I, I, I don't remember all of it, but he did a hanging of, at the Asia Society of some part of their collection. And he put this beautiful celadon vase on exhibit and on the label he wrote something to the effect that there is no more perfect sculpture than a vase and I thought about that for a long time you know and I thought how I also could imagine saying that and that I enjoyed thinking about that that I enjoyed it was sort of the same as the gober sink you know like this transformation of something ordinary (laughs) into a different vocabulary like oh that vase is just a regular vase but no it's really profound sculpture let's look at it again and so I, I, I liked that that everyday piece of information leaking into my work I want to zip forward a, a bit in order to move, to sit backward. So a few years ago, you ended up at the 300-year-old Meissen porcelain manufactory in southeastern Germany. Very eastern. Yeah, it's, it's due south of Berlin, basically. It's, it's 20 minutes south of Dresden. Yeah, yeah. So it's that far east and south. And when you were there, you found yourself fascinated by Meissen's molds. You had previously kind of, well, not kind of, you'd previously played around with molds with a series of cast paper sculptures called Once Removed. Why were molds interesting and what about them, you know, did you, did you, did you transit that experience from the late 90s to seeing something and potential or whatever the right word is in Meissen's molds? That, that was one of the... That's been one of the interesting things of of doing this 20-year survey and having to revisit bodies of work and see that at a very early period, I was already invested in that form of production 
the mold. And I hadn't even thought of it when I worked at Mizen and decided to use the molds. So those, you know, paper vases were shown, in fact, with their molds. Each vase is sitting on top of the mold from which it was cast. And actually, the later series, the building series, also was very engaged with the mold because in that series, the way that thing was made was I painted on the inside of the mold rather than painting on the piece, pieces on the individual cast. And then each and then the pieces began as dark after I painted the first casts of those pieces with liquid porcelain. They came out of the mold and the surface painting became part of the structure. So, but it was very dark. And then instead of repainting the mold, I continued to cast them as if using a, I was thinking of them as prints actually. So I was using this printmaking process of making ghosts and casting and casting and casting until the porcelain became white again. So in fact, it's a whole cycle of dark to light. And then only when the cast became white, did I repaint the inside of the mold. But that so so that is another engagement with the mold as the i mean the mold is what i was focused on really more than what came out of the mold you know in effect and when i went to mycin i mean i was just given this opportunity and i had never worked really in porcelain because the that casting series i didn't really feel that i had worked in porcelain i as i said i felt like i was doing this printmaking project in three dimensions. I went to the factory. I couldn't figure out what those those figures or what we in the West call figurines, and they hate it being called figurines. So what the figures were about, I couldn't figure out what the whole 18th century aesthetic was about. Of course, then I came to know it and embrace it, but I was just completely struck by the industrial architecture. The industrial architecture, I was in this 16th century town. The industrial architecture of the factory itself was fantastic and or fabulous to me. It was sort of brutalist, crazy place, plunked down into the 16th century town. And then, and then the place was filled with mold, so that even the tiniest little figure, the tiniest figure was requiring 25 molds to make because every little, every little pleat would be, have an undercut that necessitated making a separate mold. So there were just carts and carts and carts. The place was just filled with these molds and I found them to be I mean, it was like Donald Judland, sort of, you know, it was very, very beautiful. And people walked around in lab coats, white lab coats and white sneakers. And it it had this kind of purity that was at odds with these frou-frou, colorfully painted objects that were actually being released into the world. And my feeling was that I wanted to bring what is not being seen into the world to be seen because this is, 
you know, something mysterious and sort of insane and very, very interesting. Do you think of the Meissen pieces as, as being or as being related to collage? I think that, yes, that a lot of my work relates to collage, cutting things apart, putting it back together, that a lot of the activity of being a sculptor could be seen as collage of, you know, parts pulled apart, parts put together, constructions. So in that a construction is a kind of collage, yes. I'd like to ask a series of kind of quick hit questions about other artists that I wonder if if you've looked at, studied, thought about, tried to find some things from. We talked about Idol Idol earlier, and that's spelled I-D-L-E-I-D-O-L. When you started using clay, you know, seven or eight or, you know, whatever years ago, you started using forms that, to my eye, are, are kind of reminiscent of, of Peter Volkos and, and Ken Price. Were you looking at them, thinking about them? I was definitely not thinking about Peter Volkos. And I think I, I, think I, I really didn't understand anything about Peter Volkos. All I remembered was, vaguely was, like, plates with poked holes in them. I mean, now I'm way more interested in that and in his work because I was introduced to it. I was in a show at the ICA Philadelphia put together by Ingrid Schaffner and Janelle Porter at Dirt on Delight, and they actually paired my work with Peter Volkus. I was like, wow, are you kidding? I never saw these things. I never even thought of it, And that, but that was, you know, a wonderful pairing. I've talked to Glenn Adamson and he was saying, he's a Peter Volkes expert and he was saying how he had been involved in suggesting that pairing. So I understand that completely, but I didn't know it before. And Ken Price, I love Ken Price and I love all these artists, but I, Ken Price was is somebody who is super refined, is about refinement. And to me, that's what I kept on seeing about Ken Price. Now I understand why people are seeing the form because we're both using voluptuous forms. We're, you know, interested in the comedic possibilities of the comedic and sexual possibilities of sculpture. But, you know, I was overwhelmed by his assault and drive towards perfection, perfection in the surfaces and perfection in the, and of course those surfaces are paint. So I, I didn't feel identified with that early on at all. Your studio is in, or one of your studios is in Woodstock, New York. And if I, if my, I, I think it's quite near where Philip Guston's studio was. And I often think I see Gustonian forms, if that's a thing, kind of made three-dimensional in your work, such as in, you know, Because of the Wind from 2010, which looks like an early squiggly Guston abstraction with some air blown into it and then pushed around a bit. That's interesting. I never thought of that particular one as Gustonian, but I like it, yeah. So is he is he important? or? Yeah. I mean, I think he's entirely important and maybe one when maybe one of the reasons that I ended up in Woodstock even I mean I it's not that I sought out Woodstock because I knew Gustin was there but by chance what before we had the house we rented for one month a house that turned out to be 
across the street from where he lived and had his studio. And that's when it, you know, clicked into place. Like, oh, my God, he, uh, Philip Gustin was here. Because in, honestly, I never wanted to be in Woodstock. I mean, when it was just we got offered this house and I said, I'll be anywhere but Woodstock because what is this town? What is this town filled with, you know, old hippies and I'm just, I don't want any part of this. But then, you know, digging digging deeper into it, the richness of that place beginning with Augustine and then, of course, scratching the surface and, and understanding that at the turn of the century, there was uh, this place, Purdcliff, that was a utopian arts community, and then the Maverick, where John Cage did his great 433 concert, and, you know, tons, and, and uh, it's a place of culture that Augustine was and drawn to, and that then I became drawn to, but my studio then is literally, I, I got a place literally over the hill. Like you'd have to walk over a mountain to get there, but it's directly over the hill from his. And when I first started to work in Woodstock, I just started to spill, these forms started to spill out of me and I decided these like head-like forms and that surprised me and as in so-and-so and so-and-so and on and on and they, I, you know, I, I hadn't anticipated that but one day I walked into the studio and I saw it in pro I saw one of the forms, the big fat squat one in profile, which I hadn't seen. And I thought nobody else is going to see this, but I see this gust in head. And instead of shying away from it or distancing myself from it, I felt tenderness towards it and wanted to honor that great influence. And so I ended up glazing it pink just to seal the deal for the rest of the world. And so I will continue to talk about it for the rest of my life in that way. Uh, you know, I mean, it, you know, it was important, important moment. And I, I wanted, there's a coyness, you know, one can have a coyness about source material and in, in that, and certainly in that case, I have open arms and and really I'm happy to embrace it. And I think he is the god of so much that is very real and wonderful in what has happened in painting in particular and, you know, in the last 40 years. Does Franz Vest interest you? Yeah. I mean, I think that Franz Vest is a great artist. I love, I guess... It was the, the hand stuff, and when I was doing the Buddhas, I mean, those that using the paint skins that I happen to have in my studio, I don't think right away, but maybe sometime early on, I saw, I knew about and saw one of his pieces, I can't remember what they're called at this moment, but that one handles, you know, made by hand. The adapter. Yeah. And then handled, and I just thought, oh, that's so cool. And so, yeah, I, that form that is both abstract and representational at the same time, I'm definitely a sucker for that.
Awesome. That was great. Thanks so much for talking with me. Having recently completed a major renovation of its Tatawando design building, the Pulitzer Arts Foundation is now open with three exhibitions, Calder Lightness, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces, and Fred Sandback 64 three-part pieces. On view through September 12th, the exhibitions offer visitors unique opportunities to experience the artist's works. The Pulitzer's expansive, light-filled upper level provides an ambiance that animates Calder's hanging mobiles and offers multiple vantage points from which to view these iconic works. In its first exhibition since 1975, Sandback's 64 three-part pieces makes a U.S. debut in one of the Pulitzer's new galleries, with a different sculpture presented every week. Installed by the artist himself, Richard Tuttle Wire Pieces provides a rare opportunity to see a large concentration of these works from 1972. For more details on the exhibitions, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Habsburg Splendor, Masterpieces from Vienna's Imperial Collections, showcasing masterworks assembled over five centuries of empire building by Europe's longest reigning dynasty. The exhibition of some 100 objects from Vienna's Kunsthistorisches Museum is on a national tour this year and opens June 14th at the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Visit mfah.org slash Habsburgs for more. Welcome back. My next guest is Museum of Fine Arts Houston curator Mari Carmen Ramirez. Her latest presentation from the Museum of Fine Arts Houston's exceptional collection of Latin American modernism is titled Cosmic Dialogues. Mari Carmen Ramirez, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Glad to be here. I think we need to set up this gallery, which is pretty different from what people are used to seeing and experiencing when they go into a gallery, with a, with a bit of a description. So when visitors walk into the Luminous Movement Gallery, could you kind of describe that moment you hope they have? I mean, it seems to me you obviously designed the space as a bit of a take one step in, stop, pick your jaw up off the floor, and and then move through it. <laughs> yes, well, the way that I expect visitors to come into the gallery is by first moving through the first half of the exhibition, which contains works uh, first by uh, the Venezuelan artist Gego, and then by Jula Kosic's uh, Hydrospatial City, which is one of the features of this exhibition. And it's actually, this is a huge installation made of plexiglass models uh, that hang from the ceiling, and that it's sort of like a view of a, a futuristic city hung after the earth has completely depleted its resources, man is forced to move into the atmosphere, into these habitats. And so we took that as the main focus, the main focus of this exhibition, and built a series of works around it. And for the hydrospatial city, light is very important. There is a series of light boxes there. And of course, uh, Jula Kosice was one of the great pioneers of kinetic and and light and, and the use of water in art. And so that's how this idea of the luminous gallery comes about. After you see the hydrospatial city, then you walk out of that gallery and then you are immersed into this dark gallery filled with all of these amazing works that play on light. I mean, light is the main element of all of these works. And so you're going to see a series of works side by side that are unlike any conventional artwork. They have nothing to do with painting. They have nothing to do with sculpture or drawing. They are basically structures where 
the viewer encounters different kinds of situations that involve light, movement, and time. And so instead of finding forms, you're going to find effects and shapes that are virtual, that are produced by light moving on a surface. Let me add two things that I think might be relevant. So as one goes through the, the hydrospatial city, installation, the viewer may walk between and amongst the works that hang from the ceiling. It's not an experience that you merely look in at. It is one that you move between. And then in when, when, when a viewer reaches the luminous movement gallery, the walls are painted black. There are no lights in the gallery except from the artworks. And it, it's really immersive. So are, 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 are the artists in the Luminous Movement Gallery informed by or taking off from the idea that, an art, that, that, a, that a viewer can walk amongst a piece like the habits of the hydrospatial city as kind of a jumping off point for the way light will interact with them? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the viewer is central to all of these proposals. These are artists who were trying to experiment first with the psychological and the physiological aspects of light and of movement. And in order for that to happen, you know, the viewer is really situated at the center of this experience. It's the viewer who, in many ways, completes the experience. The, the notion, the, the principle that, that is at the center of all of these works, what the artist does is that he creates a situation. He creates a structure. For instance, the work, one of the key artists who are represented in this gallery is Julio Leparc, an artist from Argentina, who created this, what is called a continuous light mobile. And uh, it's a piece from 1960-66. We actually have two of them in the, in the exhibition. And this piece consists of a canvas type structure over which the artist hangs a series of, of reflective mobiles. They are small round mobiles that are taken you know, with a thread and they hang in front of the work at a certain distance and then there's a source of light at the bottom or at the top of the work. Those mobile pieces, which are reflective, are moved by the atmospheric movement of the gallery, by air in the gallery. And the relationship between those reflective pieces, the light and the environment is what creates the artwork, is what creates the type of effects that are come out of that, of that structure and they invade the space of the viewer. And as the viewer walks in front of that uh, structure, you know, they're going to experience many different kinds of transformations of light and reflection and, and, and movement in front of the work. So the viewer is is, is, is the one who completes the work. You know, he's, he's fundamental for the entire concept of the, of the artwork. Some of the works in the gallery, such as the Le Parc, move in response to atmospheric conditions in the gallery, uh, audience moving around and so forth. But others in the show have movement embedded within the piece. The light and things move within the piece. <laughs> Could you pick maybe a favorite example of that and, and maybe use it to describe how and why artists were interested in making, making the art have the movement self-contained within it? 
Yes, well, there's another very, very good example, which is the, the work of Abraham Palachinik from Brazil. And he is working with what he, he calls the chromokinetic box. And in, in, his, in his case, what he's done is that it's, you know, he's produced like a light box, a structure that looks like a light box. And inside that structure, there's a very complex mechanism made out of rotors that move with motors and sort of like paddles that move and a series of light bulbs of different colors that move, or not, they don't move, but they are activated, obviously, by an electric circuit. So when you look at this work in the gallery, you're going to see what would be essentially sort of like the shapes and the forms of an abstract painting, but that are very, very slowly moving and changing colors, changing shapes as a result of the movement of these of these paddles and and these and the light inside so that what he's actually creating is a painting in movement, which is something that had never really been done before. So in that sense, it's a very different kind of experience than what Julio Le Parc is doing, because in the case of Julio Le Parc, you know, these light, the, the, the forms and the shapes that are created by the movement of the reflective elements and the light go out into the space of the viewer. They're kind of spread, you know, all over the surrounding space. In the case of, of Palachinik, the movement is contained inside this box and so what you get is this feeling of an abstract painting that is continually evolving and transforming itself and changing shapes and colors. And with his work you as a viewer kind of aren't quite sure how it's I mean you can understand when you're looking at a park how it's happening but with Palachnik there's a different sense of wonderment one's not quite sure. Exactly what <laughs> One's not quite sure. It's a little bit mysterious. You know, you, you, you're fascinated by it. You just look at it and it really, it's, it's, it's immersive in that sense because you're completely fascinated and watching, you know, every single moment, how it's going to change and what it's going to do. And it's a very, very slow cycle. So you can spend there, you know, easily 20, 25 minutes, you know, just watching the whole process. But I think what it's important to highlight here is the fact that all of these artists, they were all pioneers, they're all Latin American, they're all pioneers of this modality of art, which is essentially linked to what is what was known as the kinetic art movement, which started in Paris in 1955. But these group of artists who were mostly from Argentina and Brazil, they were interested in going beyond just the notion of movement and incorporating light. And of course, light, you know, is movement in and of itself. And light also involves time in and of itself. So they were they were all experimental artists who who were you know dealing with a completely new medium and for them they the notion of art implied research they saw themselves as researchers more than artists you know they they tried to get away from this idea of the artist as being you know the illuminated you know creator and see the artist more as a, almost like a scientist and so what they did with the these works is essentially to create situations, you know, using very basic elements. In other words, they, they use the canvas, they use the mobile elements, or they use motors and, and electric circuits, but 
they were creating a particular visual situation for the viewer to react to that uh, situation. And so it's, that's all part of this notion of art as involving research and involving investigation at a different level. So my next question might be a teeny bit unfair, given that neither of us was, you know, of an age in, in the early to mid-60s to have firsthand experience of, of eight of the nine pieces in the, in the gallery. But as I sat in the gallery and thought about, you know, in 2015, and thought about these works and tried to figure out kind of how they happened and how they looked now, I had a very hard time understanding how they would have seemed to audiences in, in the early and mid-60s with a different level of not just literacy, but human awareness of, of technology. Do you have any sense of how, how people responded to or understood these pieces in, in when they were first shown? That's hard to, it's, it's hard to say for sure how, how they had, had they responded to it, but I think that they were extremely novel pieces, extremely innovative, you know, for their time. And I think you have to remember that this is, you know, most of these pieces were done in the 1960s when technology was a brand, this kind of technology was a brand new thing. You know, we're talking about, you know, TVs introduced in the 1950s, you know, people are still excited about, you know, television, you know, itself and the moving, you know, image in television. I think 1960s is already the beginning of computers. It's also the beginning of video art. You can think of the uh, work of Nam, Nam June Paik. And, you know, technology is something that artists are becoming increasingly involved. And it's still a very, uh, still very early. It's still, you know, something that creates, uh, there's a lot of mystery about it. But there's also a lot of excitement. And I think that when you see videos of uh, some of these exhibitions, the exhibitions that were done in the 1960s. I mean, people are completely mesmerized by it. There's an excitement about what man can produce, you know, in art using machines and electricity and motors and light. I think there's, there's a lot of excitement. What is very interesting is the fact that there was a very different reaction to this kind of art in Europe and Latin America versus the United States. In the United States, there was a very important exhibition in 1964-65 called The Responsive Eye, which took place at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. And this was the exhibition that really introduced this group of artists. And even though we know from video clips from time when the exhibition opened that the public was very interested in it, the critics were not. There was a lot of resistance to this kind of art here in the United States. And people thought it was, a lot of the critics thought, you know, it was, it was in, in, inventive, it was, it was creative, and, but that it really was not good art or that it was not uh, the kind of art that was going to remain. And as a result, there was a big bias against this kind of art here in the United States, which I think even until today, you know, it persists in, in certain circles. And that's the reason why these, uh, these Latin American artists did not become as well known here in the United States as they are in Europe or in Latin America. Every artist in the gallery is are, is from Argentina or Brazil. How much were they aware of each other or working in conscious dialogue in, in these works? They were all, they all knew each other. I'm not sure whether 
Abraham Palachinik knew Bardanega or Boto personally, but he certainly knew of Le Parc. And because they were, you know, it was a small group, they were all, the Argentinians were all, you know, knew each other from Argentina. Then they went to Paris and they formed this, you know, kind of exile community in Paris. And, and Palachinik was one of the, was probably the only artist in, in Brazil that was working in this modality. So he, I'm pretty sure that he knew of these artists and if not, had not visited them, but he won a very important prize at the Sao Paulo Biennial in 1951 with his first chromokinetic set. So, you know, he was, you know, they knew each other from this community of artists. And finally, what legacy do you see this work having in today's art? And I don't just mean in Latin American art, I mean art, period. Well, I can tell you that, you know, there's a very important Venezuelan artist, Elias Crespin, whom we have shown here many times, that that really is kind of an, you know, he's working within this tradition, doing kinetic art that sometimes incorporates, it doesn't incorporate light as such, but light is a very important element of the work. And he's certainly working with movement, he's certainly working with plexiglass. So I suspect that, you know, like him, there are other artists who are trying to pick up on that tradition. I mean, you can think of the work of Olafur Eliasson also. I mean, these are artists who have, uh, I mean, they're doing different things with it and not necessarily working in the same tradition, but the notion of light, the notion of color and movement, I think, are continue to be enduring interests, you know, of artists across generations. You know, we've been talking about light and movement, but the one thing we haven't mentioned is plastic. These works all involve, or even maybe with one exception, require plastics. Was that material fundamentally important or was it just kind of new, available, and thus useful? No, it was fundamentally important. And in that, Jula Kosice was one of the pioneers. He was one of the pioneers in the use of plexiglass, which was, as you know, it's an industrial material that did not have a lot of application in the field of art. George Van Tongerlo, he was also an artist who used and incorporated plexiglass in, in his work. And, and But Kosice was one of the first to incorporate it at the level, you know, of something like the hydrospatial city. Plexiglass is a very difficult material to work with in terms of sculpture or object making because it's, you know, it can, it's difficult to manipulate and it also can break. But you can see in the hydrospatial city the level of virtuosity that, that Kosice achieved with this medium, not only in terms of how he constructs the objects, which are extremely elegant and, you know, they are, they consist of round or semicircular forms, which requires a lot of work with the material, but also how he incorporates color and, and color accents, you know, in different parts of these of these models, of these maquettes. And you see that most of the artists, people like Marta Boto, like Gregorio Vardaniga, they also incorporate plexiglass into their works, not necessarily in the ones in which we have in the exhibition, but in many of the other works that they produce. So these artists are 
looking at, at, at plexiglass and different kinds of plastics also as a way of getting away from the traditional notion of, of an art object. They are trying to produce objects that are in sync with industrial society, with consumer society. They're trying to produce objects that introduce new means, new materials, and that have nothing to do with the traditional notion of the painting or the sculpture. And then another material that is also new that you can see in this exhibition is water. Again, Kosice is one of the pioneers of that. I mean, the idea of incorporating water into the work. And when you're talking about kinetic art and art that is based on movement, you know, water is one of the most fluid and most, you know, kinetic, you know, elements that you can find. And it's also, an, you know, an element that involves time, you know, because, you know, any movement, you know, it's also time-based. So water is the kinetic element par excellence together with light. And so you see how Kosice incorporates it in several of the structures of the constructions that, that we have in the exhibition. There's one that's in the shape of a, of a water drop, which is a motif that he used a lot. And, and then there's another one that's more abstract, but that also incorporates both light and, and water. And of course, the whole notion of the hydrospatial city, as it's indicated in the title, you know, it's hydro special because it's hydrospatial and that derives from the fact that the way in which these habitats in Kosice's scheme were to be supported in the atmosphere had to do with processes that involved the transformation of water. So it, it, it's at the basis of, of the whole proposal of the hydrospatial city. Marie-Carmen Ramirez, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thanks to you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.